Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode four, LaSalle and the Voyageurs. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. So, I'm very excited about this episode, Patrick. We spent three episodes on Father Marquette and the Spirit Trail Park and the Marquette Mound and the origins of Chicago. All great stuff. But there were other people here in Chicago. Indeed. We had other French explorers that came through the area. And I believe this history is pretty set. We aren't going to change anything here. No, there's no secret revelations here. But I thought it'd be fun to open this episode by a little bit of trivia. Sure. Well, getting back to the origins of what we thought this podcast would be, which is to just relate the history that we all know. Right. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, Patrick, and you're a smart guy, so hopefully you'll know the answer. I I hope I can pass the test. Question number one, what street begins at the old Board of Trade building in Chicago? LaSalle. Yes. What French explorer's statue is in Lincoln Park? LaSalle. What city is on the Illinois River near Ottawa, Illinois? Uh, Let me guess. LaSalle. Who founded Louisiana for France? I don't know that one either, but I'll say LaSalle. And, yes, you've been right this whole time. (laughs) And what is the old French name for someone who works in a manor house? Let's say LaSalle. Uh, Well, you're close. It would be Sal, but I guess the le would mean, yes, that would make it. The Hall, or yes, LaSalle. Or the man. Yes. So, Which he, he is in this episode. He's the man, and you're the man, because you got them all right. Some lucky guessing. And by the way, I could have gone on forever, because LaSalle's name is all over the maps of the United States and Canada. Indeed. He did quite a bit of exploration here, and he's very well known in Chicago, mainly because of LaSalle Street, which takes Chicagoans right down into the heart of the financial district of and, Chicago. And speaking of financial district, there used to be a bank called LaSalle Bank that I think it's Chase bought them, but Indeed. It, was, it was a big bank. And the second most ornamented bridge in Chicago is the LaSalle Bridge crossing the main branch of the Chicago River. Now, I did not know that. Second only to the Michigan Avenue Bridge, which is the most iconic bridge in Chicago. And it's not just Chicago. If you go to Detroit, LaSalle's name is all over the streets and parks and, and I'm sure in, in other parts of the Great Lakes region. And you were just back from Louisiana. I got to imagine there's some LaSalle stuff down there. And I was in the Cathedral of Saint Louis, and LaSalle's personal flag was in the cathedral by the altar. Prominently displayed, yes. sounds like. So LaSalle was the man. He was the guy. He was LaSalle. Again, with a name like René, Robert, Calvier, Sir de LaSalle, he's a man that gets your attention. And we were very excited because we had Lorraine Boissonneau come in. Remember Lorraine talked to us about her book? Yes, she's a great writer and author. She's written for the Smithsonian Magazine and, and several other periodicals and wrote this book on the Voyageurs. She wrote The Last Voyageurs, Retracing LaSalle's Journey Across America, 
16 teenagers on the adventure of a lifetime. And I thought it would be fun to open the interview, as I did when we talked to Lorraine. I, I opened it by reading a letter that LaSalle himself wrote in the winter of 1682-83 at the place called Chicago, or Chicago. It says a lot about his personality. So let's go to the tape where we begin the interview with Lorraine by me reading that letter. This will be the gate of empire, this the seat of commerce. Everything invites to action. The typical man who will grow up here must be an enterprising man. Each day as he rises, he will exclaim, I act, I move, I push. And there will be spread before him a boundless horizon, an unlimitable field of activity. That sounds like your man, René Robert Calvier, Sir de la Salle. Yeah, he was definitely very enterprising and had an eye towards commerce a lot of times, expansion of the French Empire in North America. So that definitely rings true with pretty much all of his goals. And again, just a quick primer, he was granted a bunch of land. Was it, was it by the king or was it by the governor general of, of Canada? So when he first came to New France, Canada... Um, he didn't really have much in the way of money or any possessions, anything really to his name because he had been training with the Jesuits and to mm. take orders with the Jesuits, you have to renounce any claim to your family titles. So he was granted a land holding thanks in part to his brother who was already a priest in New France and that was called Lachine and it was in Montreal. Mm. And so that was kind of his base for a few years anyways, while he sort of got the lay of the land and started learning a couple of different Native American languages and figuring out where he wanted to go next. It was like Chicago. He knew a guy. Basically, Just yeah. Happened to yeah. Be, <laughs> he knew a guy. Happened to be his brother. Yeah. So not, some things haven't changed that much. Yeah, and there really weren't a lot of people in New France at that point. So there was a lot of land for the taking. Right. And it was overseen by the king, but not really directly. Like, this was not a micromanaging situation. The king was just sort of like all right, colonists, do your thing, govern yourselves. And it was really more the governor in New France who was more directly monitoring what was happening in the colony. And we're talking about an era in which you wrote a letter to France. It might be, I don't know, four or five months one way. Right. Depending on the weather, three, four months on the way back. So it's not like Twitter or anything. <laughs> right, yeah. This was, uh, you know, you're kind of on your own. As soon as you got out past any of the cities or towns like Quebec City and Montreal, it was kind of the wilderness. There just wasn't a whole lot out there when LaSalle first got here. Obviously, he wasn't the first one. We know that Champlain had been here. And I know Marquette and Joliet were doing their voyageurs, their explorations about 1673. So, I mean, he, he came about a decade later. Right. So he kind of knew what he was getting himself into a little bit. I mean, yes. But I think anyone coming from France couldn't have a good grasp of what exactly they were getting themselves into because the climate was so different, because right. the terrain was so different. And I think it's easy to forget that this was not empty. People had lived here for thousands of years, right. so they were wandering into political systems and communities that had their own patterns and their own histories, and you didn't necessarily know how to interact with them, even though the French and especially the Jesuits had been keeping the Jesuit relations for decades at this point and talking about the different encounters that they were having and the languages that they were studying, you know, with the, in the communities that they were trying to um, 
proselytized to. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that anything would really prepare you for actually physically being on the ground and having to deal with all the challenges. Especially the mosquitoes. Oh, my God. The mosquitoes, yes. The freezing cold winter outdoors. I can't imagine not having regular shelter. And in your book, you talk about just... Um, you quote some um, some of the voyageurs that they were just being driven insane by the mosquitoes. Yeah, just clouds of them. Yeah, I mean if you're if you're going along the water, which all of them are, that's their main method of traveling canoes along the water. That's the breeding grounds for mosquitoes, so oh, impossible right. to avoid them. And, <laughs> and usually, swampy marsh areas are going to be you know right along the water's edge, which exactly. is where they are traveling. There wouldn't you know there wouldn't be nice clean docks to get off and get in and out of the water and so then the portaging you're usually going up through a marsh or a creek often to get as far as you can on by water and then portage so i learned from your book that he had his his land and then the king the sun king mm-hmm. louis the 14th right? right he gave lasalle kind of his blessing imprimatur to go off and explore this new world on behalf of france right so the thinking at the time with King Louis and um, Colbert, who was the minister who kind of oversaw affairs in the colony, was that they didn't want it to be very big. They didn't want to expand much because it would take a lot of resources to have more people be there, and they weren't sure that they needed to spend those resources because throughout the whole of France's time in North America, 75% of the exports they had were fur. For beaver right. fur. So you really didn't need a lot of infrastructure for that. Right. You just needed men who were willing to go out into the wilderness and do the trade deals and then come back and ship the things out. Um, so the idea of exploration was kind of monitored and limited. So the king had to actually give permission, not that that stopped people from doing it, of course, but for it to be legitimized. And for LaSalle, that meant having some sort of claim over the trade that would come from that that exploration. And that was really the main driver, economically speaking. I mean, sure. you can talk about, you know, his personality, if he was just more suited to taking risks and going out and wanting to discover things. But I think, like, the economics, he wanted to make money. And right. the way well, both, that is... both the United States and Canada were um, initially colonized by companies because the idea was to bring the riches back to the old world, right? So this is no different, and particularly at that early stage. Yeah. Yeah. And to put it in a modern context, this would be like going off in the wilderness and bringing back Louis Vuitton purses. It was because beaver furs were used for hats. Right, to make the felt. And they could be gained very inexpensively from the Indians for beads or pots or things that were pretty prevalent common day in Europe but were brand new and a new technology to the Indians so they could get it for cents on the dollar and then sell it for many times that, just like, you know, getting a, a knockoff Louis Vuitton from Vietnam, say, and then selling it for much more here in the United States. How did you end up writing about this topic and doing a book on it? How, where'd that come from? Can you just tell us a little bit? Yeah. So for me, I personally, I was interested in it because I didn't know very much about French history in North America. I'm from Northern Ohio and I know that the voyageurs are on the curriculum in certain areas, but Northern Ohio just was not one of those areas. Um, and I guess it sort of makes sense because 
Lake Erie wasn't touched quite as much. It could be kind of detoured around with the other lakes by the fur traders. Um, so for my own personal edification, I wanted to learn more about that past. And so I started working on it when I was a senior in college, just who LaSalle was and how we think of his legacy today. Because like you said, his name is on so many things, streets and counties and schools and cities. And I didn't know anything about him personally. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure that many people did. Pretty much everyone I talked to had no idea who he was. And the interesting thing was I would talk with French friends as well. And they also had no idea who he was. So the French people, I'm not, I don't want to say for all French people, because I'm sure that is not true. But my friends who were my age at the time also weren't really familiar with who, who he was or why he was important. Like they'd maybe heard the name in class once and that was kind of it. Um, so as I was doing this research, I wanted to speak with people who had dedicated some period of their life to understanding LaSalle and continuing his legacy in different ways. And that's how I ended up coming across Reed Lewis, who was the head of the reenactment who portrayed LaSalle. Right. From Elgin, Illinois. Right. Right. Yeah. My, my father actually grew up in Elgin, Illinois. Oh, okay. And I had a cousin who taught at Larkin High School. Wow. So in your research, your path could have gone maybe towards Marquette and Joliet because, I mean, they obviously are part of that French, French tradition. tradition. Of before, right. Oh, yeah. This was totally a crapshoot. It was kind of throwing a dart <laughs> at a wall and being like, that name. I didn't even consider anyone else. It was, okay. He was just the first person I came across it. I was like, oh, he did some interesting things. That would be an interesting person to learn about. Right. And it went from there. <laughs> yeah, something. something well, it certainly was resonated. a good path for you because <laughs> you uncovered an unbelievable story. Patrick and I were wondering, what was your method for the historiography? Uh, did you work off diaries or, or clippings or interviews or well, all which three? which time period? <laughs> well, both. I mean, just so, putting the book together, right. tell us a little bit about your, okay. your process. and um, The LaSalle historical section was find, tracking down primary source documents where I could find them. Um, I speak and read French, but 17th century French is a little different. Sure. So there was some... C'est difficile. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there was a little bit of interpretation that had to go on. They had names that were different than... The names that we use now. I would look at maps of the Great Lakes. And be like I don't, I don't know what map they're talking, what lake yeah. they're referring to when yes. they talk right. about the different names. And so I had to sort of figure out, go through and compare a lot of things, so I understood what they were talking about. And then I think the other hard part about history writing is that you have to understand the context in which documents were written, as well as the documents themselves, right. Right. because they're all trying to put forward a certain point of view. So I had to understand where LaSalle was coming from, where his peers were coming from. Mm-hmm. And that was really important too. So that was when I kind of that relied on... That contextual fabric, right? Yeah, it, yeah. So I've been reading a lot of 1812 documents and, and, and the typical histories don't give you that context. You know, that it's really bare of, of the nuances of what's going on at the time. And, and, only by immersing yourself in that do you really start to get that fabric that's around it of the connotations and what they mean by words because they change over time. And I'm sure it's the same as in English as in French or vice versa. Not that right. I speak French, but yeah, we'll get you to learn some French. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm lucky with English that I can even muddle my way through that. Uh, yeah, I think that actually what came in handy with that was reading general histories written by historians of uh-huh. the era 
And so they could kind of do the heavy lifting for me and be like, this is what life looked like. And then I could compare that with what I was reading by LaSalle and his contemporaries and say, okay, so this is how that fit in there and Mm -hmm. so on. And I kind of did a similar approach when I was writing about the 1976 reenactment because so I did interviews with all of the members of the expedition except for a couple who just weren't interested in participating, which was... So really? let's back up a minute. Wow. Give us a little thumbnail okay. sketch of what that reenactment was and, and, and uh, for, the, for the listeners. Sure. The French teacher that I mentioned originally, Reed Lewis, decided that he wanted to do something special, big, attention-grabbing for the U.S. Bicentennial in 1976. And he had done reenactment of French voyagers in the past. He had mm-hmm. done the Joliet Marquette expedition a couple years earlier. That was like 74, or was that earlier than that? 73? 73. Yeah. yeah, okay. The 300th anniversary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ah, right. I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah, I think yeah, it was the that makes sense. Anniversary. Yeah. And he was sort of roped into it by Ralph Fries, yeah. who was the big canoe guy right. in Chicago. We, we love Ralph. Yeah. We're big fans of Ralph. M- yeah. Mr. Canoe is his yeah. moniker here in Chicago. And I was lucky enough to, to know him and canoe with him and, and to go to his amazing store. And Ralph was a legend. And you knew it the minute you met him. You knew this guy. But I didn't know. So you your book told me about this because Ralph never mentioned it to me. Yeah, it's amazing how many things he had his hands into and how much he inspired because I don't think the LaSalle reenactment would have happened if not for Ralph recruiting Reed Lewis for that Juliet Marquette expedition. That's really what got him interested and I think showed him the showed Reed the possibility of reaching people through reenactments like that. Because I mean a lot of the people who ended up joining, of course, wanted to do it for the adventure, but the real goal was to educate people about French history in the U.S. and prove that modern man was capable of great things and that teenagers could also be relied on to, to undertake really strenuous, difficult tasks because that was a big component of the reenactment. He recruited from local high schools for the vast majority of the crew. Ralph was a very good friend. Rich Gross one of the members of the LaSalle II expedition. He was really the driving force behind all of these recreations. The reason that Reed Lewis and Ken Lewis, his brother, got involved in the Marquette and Joliet trip was because they were Boy Scouts and they were Mm. affiliated with scouts that did a lot of paddling. And Mm. Ralph was the guy who helped them build the canoes. And when Ralph was part of a committee to put together the reenactment of the Joliet and Marquette expedition, he knew who his go-to guy was going to be. It was going to be Reed Lewis and his brother Ken Lewis. So Ralph is the guy who built canoes. He was actually the last blacksmith in the city of Chicago. Yes. Yeah. He passed yes. away about five years ago. He worked with his father in the shop on Narragansett, eventually taking the shop over himself. But when fiberglass came into wide use, Ralph was such a canoe enthusiast that he decided to, to get a mold built and build his own canoes. My sophomore year in high school, 1974, Reed Lewis, who was a high school French teacher, and he actually taught at Larkin High School where I attended high school. He'd have been involved in, in uh, the Joliet and Marquette recreation, a reenactment in 1973. They reenacted, authentically reenacted, uh, Marquette and Joliet's journey from St. Agnes, Michigan to discover the Mississippi River via the Wisconsin River down to the Arkansas River. Then they pedaled back up and through Chicago and back to Green Bay. So after that, Reed came up with this idea to perform another reenactment for the Bicentennial, which is only two years off at that time, 1976. 
So at that time, he thought, well, we'll do something more grand. We'll involve, you know, the whole Midwest and we'll recreate LaSalle's journey from Canada to the mouth of the Mississippi River. And during that expedition, it was 1681 and 82, uh, LaSalle claimed the entire Midwest for the nation of France. So he thought, what a better, what better kind of a trip to take, and that is one that would uh, would show the heartland of America, its history, explain that the first people that were here were French, and that's where Louisiana Purchase came from, and so that was Reed's idea. There were two high schools at the time in Elgin, public schools, also Elgin High School, so he asked for volunteers from the graduating class of 1976. He wanted 16 people. He wanted eight from Larkin High School, eight from Elgin High School, and these people I was lucky enough to be one of them, would be the student component of his grand plan. He came to my class council meeting, and fortunately, it was one of the few class council meetings I went to, but I showed up that day, <laughs> and there was Reed, and what a fascinating story he told. And then he asked for volunteers, and I was hooked. And I was one of about 80 guys that volunteered, but only one of 16 that was actually taken on the trip. There were 23 of us total. There was a Franciscan priest that recreated Permombre's role. There was a shop teacher who helped us to build everything that we took. We built all of our equipment. There was a biologist there who was our paramedic on the trip, and he organized the biological projects we did. There were 19 research projects that we did. So we knew nothing. I knew nothing about paddling canoes. I knew nothing about LaSalle, except what I'd learned in the sixth grade. So he set us to work researching, and we actually did the research. Not only the adult members, but the students. I had to go out and look for books and read and find out what was this all about? What did they wear? What did they look like? What kind of songs did they sing? How did they implement this? What route did they take? So each of the adult project leaders yeah. took on two or three projects, and students worked with them to develop that. What kind of research did you do personally for that? Do you remember? Well, everybody was re in charge of their own historical research. We were given a series of books to read, and I still have Francis Parkman's LaSalle and the Discovery of the Great West. It's mm -hmm. one of my favorite books, and I still read it. It was the beginning of my burning desire to learn more about French voyageur. For example, I built a musket. Well, what did the muskets look like, and how do you build a musket? You know, John Fiacco, uh, the, the guy who was the shop teacher, he's, this is what we do, guys. We had to build our chests that we put all our gear in. We had to make tomahawks and knives and everything we oh, used fantastic. on the expedition, we built. All of our clothes were hand-sewn by us. I was interested in their reenactment. Lorraine Boissonneau. Because I yeah. liked the idea of doing something like that. Sure. I can't imagine. I like outdoorsy things. Yeah. And the idea of living completely outside for eight months, eight, nine months, and having to travel such a long distance over 3,000 miles under your own steam. I mean... Yeah, it'd be fascinating yeah, to try that. it's a very impressive challenge. It's easy to get swept up in sort of the romanticism of it, like right. all history, but the day-to-day -day is probably a lot more monotonous and difficult. So Reed Lewis recruits these kids over right. like a three-year period. So um, they have to undergo training in all of this. And, and also the psychological training, which I thought was very interesting because as you get through the book, you start <laughs> to see things unravel a bit. So that he was very smart to include that. Yeah, I think he had a lot of insight into what could potentially go wrong on all fronts, on the weather and the physical and the mental, psychological. Being with 23 other guys for that long in close quarters when you're doing hard work and you're cold and wet and hungry a lot of the times. Patrick, so Reed Lewis, he's a thorough guy, right? So he, he has this expedition. He wants to raise funds. He wants yeah. to select the crew. While doing this, he's also looking for sponsorship, like LaSalle Bank gave the expedition office space. 
He also reached out to motivational leaders, experts in their field. Well, and I guess it would be helpful to understand how to help motivate the group and keep everybody on task because I'm sure there was contention at different times and you want to keep the teamwork solid and keep everybody moving towards the goal, right? So Reed reached out to Sir Edmund Hillary. Oh, wow. Who... The mount, famous mountain climber. Summited Everest with Tenzing Norgay, and he wrote a letter promoting the expedition, which, I, I mean, that's fantastic. So he gets his crew. He has a personal trainer to work with the members of the expedition, but he also hired a psychologist. I mean, this was before personal trainers were a thing. Right. And then a psychologist. He knew that it's one thing canoeing for a day or two. It's another canoeing 3,300 miles through all kinds of weather. And he knew that people would get on each other's nerves. Sure. He wanted to screen for that. So they have all this. What are they missing? They don't have any canoes, so... No canoes? Who's in charge of this thing? Well, Reed was in charge, but he also knew if you're going to have a canoe, you're going to talk to Ralph Reed. Rich Gross picks up the story. So I met Ralph at the Newberry Library. So you've got these these 16, 17-year-old kids that are there. They're the manpower to get Ralph's 20-foot birch bark canoe in the front of Newberry Library. We had to go upstairs. We had to go around... Man. So we got upstairs with it, but I remember we bumped the end, and he's he got all, oh, oh you yeah. ever met Ralph? He, he had a temper. He, he, he had his moments. So <laughs> we, heard, we heard how to handle a canoe that day, my yeah. first time ever touching one. I'd seen them, but never touched one. So <laughs> that was my first, first day meeting Ralph getting yelled at because we bumped his canoe. Uh, <laughs> after that, then, all the canoes were built at Ralph's shop. The authenticity that Ralph put into his Voyager canoes is unmatched. It really is a birch bark canoe except for this fiberglass shell. We built six of them. It took us over a year to do that. Each of the canoes has 20 feet of planking on the inside and 40 ribs on either end of the canoe. So every piece of wood had to be split out of logs and shaved by hand. And I was one of the guys that did that. We left in August, August 11th of 1976. We left Montreal and paddled up the St. Lawrence River. It was very warm. We're in Canada, but still, you know, think upstate New York. It's pretty oh, yeah. much the same thing. Humid. So it's, it's humid and it's, yeah. it's warm. So we, we paddled up in Canada during the bicentennial. The government supported us. They gave us money. They helped us quite a bit. They sent a canoe with us, Les Portageurs. They guided us through uh, Quebec. So we, we left mm. Montreal, and they came up the river with us for about a week, and then we went on there. So there was a lot of support. And I know that when you left Montreal, you got into some rapids pretty much right <laughs> yeah, away. We camped by Lachine Rapids, and as soon yeah. as we got up into the lake and then paddled north from there, we encountered several sets of rapids. And it was tough because there's only so much you can do to, to fight the rapid with the paddle. So we'd pull into shore and pull out our lines, and we'd paddle and pull the canoe up the stream. Yeah, we did that quite a bit. These rapids. Well, that's why the St. Lawrence Seaway is so important. You go into how the Eisenhower administration really, I mean, this was a big deal because you could now bring freighters in off the Atlantic into the Great Lakes. Right, I mean, it turned the Great Lakes into essentially oceans that were connected to all the all the other oceans. That's why, that's not the only reason why, but, you know, Chicago being a port city is very helpful that you can have stuff coming in off the Atlantic that's not going over railways. and Right. Yeah, and the rapids that you talk about, that LaSalle, obviously, and, you know, Joliet experienced, I mean, this was a real problem in that nick of the woods, and, and the seaway just changed all that. Yeah, imaginably different today because of all of the work that they did with the dredging and putting in the locks and sure i mean there's still definitely current which you mentioned they struggled with when they first got on it because they were going against the current but 
it's a lot less hazardous than it would have been for LaSalle. And I love the picture in your book of the canoes in that humongous lock <laughs> yes. where it's raining out. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't. It, it looks like a McCormick place or something. I mean, it's just massive. Well, it's a fascinating perspective where it's it's obviously one of the voyageurs is um, sitting at least one seat back from the front of the, the, the canoe. So there's perspective of the guy in front paddling and then these huge walls of steel these things are just dwarfed in that that canyon they're massive to see what those things are and you realize that ocean going vessels go up through these locks you know next to the dams they're they're amazing we did go through the locks we went through bornois locks and we went through eisenhower locks the only unmotorized vehicles at that time to have ever gone through the locks these are massive tanks of water we would paddle up in there, and we they had a tugboat that had to come next to us because they were worried about the currents and the turbulence in the lock. So we'd attach to the tugboat, and they'd lock us up, and up the river we'd go. So the idea about LaSalle Expedition 2 was really an educational event. Sure. Uh, we were going to tell people the history. We're going to show them what it is, and we're going to show them through reliving it. For example, we had to learn two different skits that we did. These are hour-long skits. We had to learn the songs, and we had to learn our roles in these skits. Every night that we stopped, we, we knew where we were going to be because we planned every one of our stops before we left. So when we would land at a town, we'd set up our camp and the people would come in and they'd look at what we're doing. And then we'd tell them all about the history that we're doing. Probably before dinner, for most nights, we'd sing French-Canadian folk songs in our skit. So we put on a whole show. All that had to be done before we left. Ladies and gentlemen, the crew of LaSalle Expedition 2. <laughs> you still remember the songs? I do remember the songs. We made an <laughs> album, actually. I'll show you the could album. You, could you give us bars One of our favorite songs. And what, it, what is the uh, English? Like, I don't have the I French. Roll my ball, so. I roll my ball along. I roll my okay. ball. It's it's really a good rowing song. It's, it's like you it's know, got a nice cadence to it. It's yeah. like she came running around the mountain. You know, yeah. it's the same idea. These old songs were ancient songs the peasants would sing. And there were drinking songs, there were canoeing songs, there were songs about the wind. Yes. So we had to learn all of that, all sure, in French. I'm sure there were songs about the wenches, too. Ah, uh, there was. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd stop in, in these Canadian cities, and we'd have people singing the French songs with us. They oh, knew every yeah. one of these songs. Oh, it's the folk great. songs, you know? Yeah, right. So uh, they'd sing the songs with us. So we had quite a bit of support from them. Yeah, they enjoyed it very much. And when t- going got really tough, we'd sing songs too, just, just to get your mind off what you're doing and really focus. Mm-hmm. 
use the, the rhythm of the song to paddle the canoe. Yeah. So we do that quite a bit. You know, Patrick, the crew of LaSalle 2 performed over 500 times on this trip. 500, Chris? 500 times. Wow. I can't imagine. Eight months that they it were was on the it water? It was eight months, so if you do the math, some days they would perform twice. Wow. After a full day of paddling, typically, or portaging. Yeah, there was program one and program two. Now, I don't know the difference, but I guess... <laughs> Pretty technical names, but you yeah. know, it, I'm sure everybody knew. By after that many performances. Yeah. So I'm sure Reed would call out performance one. Yeah. And they'd be like, okay. And yeah. they would just launch into yeah. it. And I'm sure they could do it in their sleep. So Chris, what is this artifact that you've brought? It looks familiar. This is a vinyl record, Patrick. Oh man, vinyl. I remember vinyl. This is... The Voices of LaSalle Expedition 2, Reliving the Past to Explore the Future, in a lovely green cover, and in the corner it says stereo. <laughs> and here's the vinyl, Patrick. That's amazing. Very cool. And it comes with a insert. Of all the songs that are typed up as well uh, throughout, and a bit of an introduction to the whole experience. So it's, it's pretty cool. I love vinyl, Patrick. First of all, when I was a kid, I loved reading the, the liner notes. Well, I mean, it's a kind of a cool format that the CD didn't lend itself to because you've got this, what is it, uh, eight and a half, ten inch square. With photos. Piece of chipboard and that has then artwork on the outside and then uh, on both sides. Or in this case, it looks like it's set up like a double album yeah. where it opens up. And so you've got more images and notes that then gives you just a bigger platform to present this stuff. It's very cool. One of the photos I'm looking at is the six canoes with their paddles raised in the air and the fleur-de-lis of LaSalle. Oh, the flags, yeah. And it, it looks, just looks great. Well, and the hats and the, the clothing are all period, so it has that authentic feel to it. It shows them portaging in the summer and lugging the canoes in the winter. It's, it's just, it's tremendous. I'm just impressed by the whole thing that, and that the fact that they got to put this album together. I'm very thankful that Reed Lewis gave me a copy of the album here to play, and some of the music that you'll be hearing in this podcast is directly from this. Also, what's neat about it is, you know how on an album you might have the Rolling Stones, and then it says Mick Jagger, vocals, Keith Richards. Sure, all the credits for the guitar, right? Who plays what, and yes. This one has the crew members of the reenactment expedition. Just like the credits in a film. And it has their name. Right. And then it has the person that they played, the real French person exactly. that they played. So Reed Lewis, we know, played LaSalle. LaSalle. And, or uh, his full name, your French is better than mine. René Robert Calvier Sur de LaSalle. This rolls, rolls off the tongue. If you, if you have some French, which I don't. And then Rich Gross, who we interviewed, he played Pierre Beret. And that's listed here. And this is a real tribute to the organizers. Not only are the, quote, stars of the expedition listed here, their crew members, but also the liaison team. That was Jan Lewis, the director, Marlena Scavazzo, assistant director, Sharon Baumgartner, community relations, Kathy Palmer, crew support, and Barton Dean, the photographer and journalist. Which they would have been really out of luck without those folks Yeah, most of the time. They really were. And, and Reed insisted that they be given credit. 
And let's go to the interview where Reed talks about the liaison team. And my wife is head of the liaison team for LaSalle. Which she needs sainthood status for that. <laughs> oh, you're not kidding. Yeah, my and goodness. She took a lot of grief, too. And that was before the internet and email and... Oh, yeah. Cell phones. Cell phones. Yeah, she... When I think that uh, she was teaching full-time and then corresponding with all these towns along this 3,300-mile route, then once underway, my folks manned the home office for the LaSalle Expedition, and they were putting in... Uh, 14-hour days, they would get information from towns who would call or correspond with them, and then Jan would periodically call them. The LaSalle Bank gave us uh, office space, so we had an address on LaSalle Street. My heroes were the women who traveled with them in the cars, the vans, the support staff. Mm -hmm. I thought they were terrific. Yeah, the men in the canoes definitely couldn't have completed the voyage without the women who were sort of the land team who went and coordinated. Yeah. Our liaison team, there were two women and a couple of other people on the liaison team that were responsible for helping to prepare us to stop at every one of these communities. Before we left, the, the route was determined. We don't know exactly what route LaSalle took all the way through. We know certain parts of it because of the accounts. There's a big mystery about how he got to Chicago. We surmised he came down the west side of the lake. There's nothing that says he didn't, so we did that. So we got the route down, and then we contacted each community we intended to stop at. And they began a relationship, explaining them what we're doing, arranging places for us to camp, events for us to participate in. We'd be in parades. We'd be the parade sometimes. We would have a pageant when we land. We'd fire our muskets. And we'd land on shore, and there'd be a big greeting. The mayor would come down and, and meet LaSalle as he landed on the shores of the city. <laughs> and Reed Lewis would play LaSalle. I Reed Lewis was, yeah. uh, yes, he was Robert Cavalier de LaSalle. And he would be dressed in his, in his finest red coat with this big black hat. And he'd yeah. land on shore, and we'd lift him off. It was a big pageant. The whole thing was a pageant. And that's exactly what it would have been oh, like yeah. with LaSalle. So they had to organize each of these stops for us along the trip. And that was done. Many letters were written. The only way to communicate was by telephone or letter at that point. Correspondence was maintained between these communities because they had to know where we were coming, and then they wanted to know what was happening to us after we were there. So they had, to, they had a big job to do. It was a thankless job. Not only did they have to get all these communities ready for us, they had to arrange food drops for us. Who did our laundry? Yeah. Leah's on team. I mean, you, there's only so many days you can wear that shirt, right? So, <laughs> so they were they were gracious enough. Each of us had changes of clothes, so we were able to uh, able to get them to do our laundry. And, and and think about that. What's laundry look like for 23 men? So they were a very important part of our project. And I think they were also under a lot of pressure because they maybe didn't always get the respect that they probably deserved for the work yeah. that they were doing. Thanks to your book, I learned that the word Toronto means the place between the trees, I think. Is that what it means? Yeah, it's along those lines. LaSalle didn't have to deal with the modern metropolis when he portaged through what we know as Toronto. And in your book, that was such an epic trek. Yeah. Something like 23 miles or what was? It, it was only about 25 to 30 miles straight yeah ended up being over a hundred because you're you're going back, back and, and you're back sure. and forth yeah and you can't carry everything at once right then we got to toronto where there was a carrying place there and you would you would portage 36 miles north to uh lake simcoe and the trent river system 
And that was a very grueling uh, part of the trip because we had to walk through the concrete streets of Toronto carrying 175-pound yeah. canoes and, you know, 75-pound packs. And Toronto wasn't there when LaSalle... Toronto wasn't there. There, was a, that there was a lake called Toronto, and there was an yeah. Indian village up there. So they walked on, the, you know, on the, on the dirt, but we walked on the concrete in moccasins. So oh, we man. did the 36-mile portage. It took us 12 days. The way we accomplished that is we, we'd carry our gear for what we thought was about a half a mile and drop it, go back and get more gear, bring it up. So you leapfrog, then you walk another half mile, mm -hmm. come back, mm -hmm. go back again. We tried to get it down to two trips because a third trip's another mile. Yeah. And every mile you walk is another mile you walk. So why did the Voyager carry such heavy packs? Because yeah. they had miles to walk. The Indians and the Voyager were immensely strong people. Historian John Swenson. In the fur trade, a pack of furs weighed like 90 pounds. At a portage, how many packs of furs can you carry over the portage? Okay, so you're going to carry two packs. That's 182 pounds. At one time. Yeah. How many people can do that today? We started out with four men on a canoe, and it was brutal. It was horrible. We had too many trips. We wound up doing it with two men on a canoe. One on the front, one on the back, and you get underneath it and you run. You run for half a mile, put the canoe down because it hurts so much. But that's they, what the Voyager did. Wow. They did the same thing. You had the leather strap on your forehead. Well, at that point, you just lay it on your back. You put a okay. thwart on your back, up yeah. on, your, on your neck and, and shoulders, and then you go. About three miles a day is what we'd make. Nobody gave up. Nobody quit. Wow. Everybody worked through it. Traditional route between Point Claire and, let's say, Mackinac. Historian John Swenson. There were on the order of like 50 portages. For each one, you had to unload your canoe and carry the goods separately from the canoe. And Well, we were talking earlier about the strength of the voyageurs. Did they have days off? Well, they were from can till can't. Can till can't? What's, what's that mean exactly? You can see and then when you can't see. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> your feet are taking a beating. At first we tried, you know, Dr. Scholl's inserts and, and Band-Aids and all these things because the yeah. feet were just the first thing that went. And then somebody remembered uh, in the research reading the, the Jesuit relations. You know, they used to pack grass in their moccasins. Oh. When we packed grass, it was like walking on pillows. It was amazing. Oh. I had no idea. Wow. And the nice thing is, is when the grass starts to get compact and get hard, throw it away and put new grass in. Yeah. So oh. that's what got a lot of us through walking on that concrete. We just figured out, hmm, remember what the Voyager did. And I think you said that there were some accidents because some drivers were like, what the heck is this? Yeah. Here's these guys in, in weird costumes marching down the street, like literally down the street in uh, a metropolis. Right, yes. There were definitely minor fender benders caused by distracted drivers seeing these people march through. Well, it would be almost like conjuring up a dream. We would have a caravan walking with us. People would drop beer for us. I don't want a case of beer. I got to carry it. Drop it down. <laughs> They would bring food to us. There were many times where we'd get at camp and rather than have to cook, people would actually bring potluck dinners. They would, it was just, that's what it was like back in yeah. the 17th century. The Indians would do the same thing for you. Sure. So they would bring food and, and, and celebrate their arrival. And, and they'd want to hear the news and the stories and find out who you were. And, and many impromptu like songs were had and we'd do little skits, you know. Uh, the mayor baked pies and we had apple pie in our garage. Uh, watch the slideshow of people that were taking pictures of us. Yeah. So we get to see what we look like as we oh, walk through Toronto. Oh, that was pretty fun. You know, in Chicago, you can't just park in uh, down the street in a park. 
Yeah. You know, in yeah. Canada, the same things. And again, that's why my heroes, the support ladies in the vans, how they found them a place. So they would like be calling like City Hall and the fire department, whoever trying to get permission. Exactly. Yeah, and it was a lot of work logistically for them to anticipate where they would stop during the day and make sure they had permission to be there and make sure they could get food there. And it was a problem in a couple different places that they needed to start fires to cook their meals if they were cooking. I think in Memphis you talked about it. Yeah, they're like, you can't start a fire. The police chief had to negotiate with the fire department over this. (laughs) Yeah. And and it was just bizarre. And uh, and then again, you got, what, uh, 23 or 24 really tired guys, big guys. Hungry. Hungry. I mean, this could be a problem too. Yeah. You got to move, pal. You know, I'm surprised there wasn't a rumble at some point. I am too. I think I think probably the the cities really didn't know what to do with it. They're like, okay, okay, I guess we'll humor you. You'll be gone soon. So, right. Would you say the best stretch of canoeing was in Georgian Bay? Georgian Bay is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Exactly. It's the northern part of Lake Huron. The Big Manitoulin Island is what separates Georgian Bay from the rest of Lake Huron. That's the North Channel up there. And LaSalle did paddle that way. That was one of the most unique parts of the trip because when we got up there, there is relatively few people that live in those areas. And this is Indian land, right? You had to get permission. Uh, some of it is. Some of it, some is, it okay. is, yeah. In between the islands and the mainland there, we'd bounce back and forth. There's almost no people up there. The water is crystal clear. It's just amazing. So we live like the voyageur did. There we were seeing things as LaSalle saw them. Reed Lewis. And we could drink directly out of the lake. We dipped the paddle into the water, hold it up at an angle, and let the water run right off of your mouth. That's how clean it is. And we were visiting a school up there, and we told the students how that just blew us away to be able to do that. And they looked at us like, well, doesn't everybody do that? They had no idea. And consequently, we're probably not doing what was needed to protect it. We want people who listen to this program to buy your book. And so I thought, if you don't mind, I thought if you could... And it's just, called The Last Voyageurs. I just thought if you could read like from here to there, because okay, I thought you sure. really capture the moment. The granite mounds of the Canadian shield, the splendid eruption of crimson and orange leaves on deciduous trees, and the soft whisper of wind blowing through the uplifted branches of the eastern white pines. Sometimes at dusk, they sat around the crackling campfires and listened to the tremulous call of a loon crying for its mate. It was an eerie, beautiful symphony directed by a silent conductor playing for whomever happened to be listening as stars appeared in the darkening sky overhead. In Georgian Bay, time no longer felt linear. Instead, it seemed entirely possible that they might round the point of a small island and come face to face with LaSalle and Tonti dressed in the finery of King Louis' court. Oh my gosh, you see the Milky Way. It's, it, there's, there's no light up there. There's yeah. no you know, man-made anything. The only light we had was from the campfire. So we got to live like the Voyager did. We got a, a taste of what they felt. But we had, to, we had to suffer the same weather factors that they did. When we got a storm, we got blown off the lake for a couple of days. We had no food because mm-hmm. like them, we ran out of food. The weather patterns are what they are and they change quickly. We'd be paddling out in the day and all of a sudden we'd get a storm pop up. And before you know it, you're in six feet waves trying to land a canoe on a rocky shore. We would paddle our canoe for about an hour and then take a break for 10 minutes. The voyageur didn't have a watch. So right. they paddled for what they thought was an hour. 
Then they stop and someone would light up a pipe, have a peep. When the peep was done, we paddled for what we thought was another hour. I know there were sometimes we paddled two hours without stopping. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> right. I'm thinking, what are you guys doing here? It's time to take a break. Killing me. But we paddle, <laughs> we get up with the sun and we paddle because uh, you want to get up early, early, early because you avoid yeah. the wind. The warmer the day gets, the more wind shows up. So we'd paddle. Whenever we thought it was time to stop, we'd stop and have breakfast, cornmeal or, or oatmeal. Yeah. Mush. And then uh, we'd get back in the canoe and we'd paddle to almost dark. We'd find a place to stop. And then we'd eat peas or beans. That was our dinner. Tell us about the chickens. Ron Hobart, who was the navigator for the crew, had charts and was able to look at them and kind of get an idea of where they were going. Wasn't sure about the exact route at different points in Georgian Bay. And so at one point, he took a gamble basically in an area of rocky islands called the chickens because of how they look on the water, I guess. Just felt like if they followed this path back, it might give them more protected cove to go into and keep keep them off the lake in case of bad weather because at this point it was late fall and so the risk of bad weather was a real risk. And if I recall, these these your description in the book was that these chickens are huge granite boulders that jut out kind of in a cluster yeah. a mile or two from shore, right? right. So if they so had to go around them, it would be quite a distance and... Yeah. Cutting through would be great, but you could also get lost or have to go back again. As you right. And they could tear your canoe in Yeah, half. so some of the boulders were huge and some were a little smaller. And if they're really shallowly just under the water, you might paddle over them and cause damage, you know, or, damage sure. and leaking and lots of problems. But he sort of just had an intuition about the way to go and ended up finding a little path the Voyagers had probably taken that Right, route. yeah. Yeah, it seemed like an obvious route once you found it, if you knew what to look for. But it was just dumb luck that he or, happened. Or, or destiny. Or, or destiny, I wonder, right. if, whatever. I wonder if it was the, the spirit of the Voyagers Maybe. transcending somehow Yeah. this, this moment. Because they were kind of in some peril there. Yeah, they, there were many points at which things could have gone worse. He made the right choice. He found the path. Do you remember the chickens? Where the yeah. French River comes down, sure. That was the route back up to Lake Nipersing and then to the Ottawa River. That's how they would go through the chickens up there. Oh, way. okay. The okay. western end, yeah. Well, you, there you are thousands thought, yeah. of passages and islands, yeah. and where do you go? And that was a problem. The Voyager, they always had someone who'd been there before, and they pretty much knew their route. You know, they had an Indian with them, or after a while, the Voyagers knew where they were going, but we'd never been there before. And Ron's first experience with it was with a map. And there are no navigational markers up there. No ships go up there. Sure. So you're just by hook or by crook trying to figure out where you are. You'd like to be in behind the islands to be out of the wind, but you don't want to take the wrong turn because now where are you and how do you get back out? But we navigated it through the Quartz Mountains and the chickens and then out to the, the passage at the mouth of the St. Mary River. So the temperatures are dropping, dropping, dropping. We watched the colors change in, in the Georgian Bay, which is just one of the most amazing sights. But with the colors, the temperatures drop. So we get to St. Ignace, and it snows that day. I can remember we voted. That was my first time I voted. I was 18 years old, and I, I voted in the 76 election. <laughs> so, uh, so we voted. We voted there. We had absentee ballots, and we all voted. And then uh, as, we, as we progressed around the western side of Lake Michigan, the temperatures dropped and dropped and dropped. Where we then had the, the crossing over to around the northern coast down to uh, the Garden Peninsula. Through those islands at the mouth of Green Bay, at the southern end, it's called Death's Door. And it's called Death's Door because many people died trying to make that crossing. Yeah. 
we got to Washington Island and we got there early. We paddled the whole northern mouth of the bay from the Garden Peninsula down to Washington Island without event. It was just the most beautiful passage, real calm day. And we paddled on down, got in ahead of schedule. We stayed there for two or three days, did some presentations, and we were then supposed to paddle around to the southern end of the island for a big gathering. You know, everybody's going to be there to meet us. It was in early November and the weather had been getting worse. So they'd been on this island for several days and were falling behind in their schedule. Again, the schedule thing was a big issue. And it seemed like at last the weather was good enough that they could take off. And Washington Island, there's station going back several hundred years. This for, is Death's Door. Yeah. Okay. For being Just that peninsula of Door County, basically. Right. right. Yeah. As soon as there's any little bit of wind or... And, and it's a rocky, hazardous coast. And yeah, so they, they didn't think they were going to run into trouble because the trip they were making was really short, only about six miles, because they were just going from the north part of the island to the south part so that they would be better positioned to cross the Death Door channel the next day. The canoe that I was with broached and filled with water. Now you've got four guys in a canoe and it's just above freezing. We're a quarter mile from shore. We can't have these guys turn over. I mean, if they do, we're in trouble. So we pull over right next to them immediately. And then another boat pulls in next to them like that, form like a catamaran. And we actually paddled them into shore. But when we got into shore, we're looking around and, and go, where's Bill's canoe? We lost a canoe. So Patrick, this is a tense situation here. Oh my gosh, Chris. So one of the canoes is missing? It's missing. They tried to cross Death's Door, which again, that name didn't come out of nowhere. The French called it Death's Door because of this very situation, the currents, the wind between Washington Island and the peninsula of Door County. Well, that rocky coast of Door County has been infamous for a location for shipwrecks. And this is a precarious situation, so... The voyageurs, they've battled on the water, and they turn around, and one of their canoes is missing. Chris, that music in the background, is that you on the piano playing the Edmund Fitzgerald? It is, Patrick. Thanks thanks for noticing. The song by Gordon Lightfoot. Yes. That commemorated the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald in the storms of November. November 10th, 1975, with the loss of the entire crew of 29. Wow, that's that's a year before this is happening. The SS Edmund Fitzgerald was the biggest Great Lakes freighter of the American fleet, Patrick. And when it launched on June 7, 1958, she was the largest ship on the North America's Great Lakes wow. and remains the largest to this day to have sunk. In Lake Superior. Being on the Great Lakes in November, you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I've been out sailing in some uh, rough weather in that short chop on the Great Lakes and particularly Lake Michigan, is is pretty nasty. And being in a canoe would be dicey at best. So what happens next, Chris? Well, you'll have to tune in to the next episode, oh, Patrick. killing me. That's the way we do things. Cliffhanger. It, it literally is, yes. It's unfortunate, but that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> All right, and there we go. So tune in to this, Chris's second episode, which continues. Episode four, LaSalle and the Voyager. Patrick, we should thank those that helped us with this episode. Reed Lewis, author Lorraine Boissonneau. Rich Gross. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson 
for the idea and branding assistance, and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.